You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Okay, if you have not heard about Cash App, you're going to love me. You want more from all these free apps used for just free and fast money transfers, right? Well, I've got the hookup for you. The Cash App. The Cash App card is a free Visa debit card that lets you use your Cash App balance to pay online and in stores. It's also the only way to get Boost. Now, let me tell you about Boost because it's exclusive to Cash App. Boost are reusable instant discounts that work at places you actually go to, everywhere from Starbucks to Walmart to even the PlayStation Network store. You can do so much more than buy and save money with this. You can even purchase shares of stock in companies you love by investing as little as $1. Banking is also made easy. With Cash App, you can directly deposit paychecks, tax returns, and more to your Cash App balance using the unique account and routing numbers. And if you don't think things can get any cooler, it does by allowing you to buy and sell Bitcoin, the money of the future. Selling and receiving money on Cash App is as easy as entering a phone number, using another user's name, or simply scanning a QR code. Hit the special link in the show notes and get $5 just for signing up. That is, use that link in the show notes and get $5 just for signing up. So go on. Go ahead and hit that link in the show notes and get set up with Cash App today. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. All right, degenerates, we all have a question for you. I I have a question for you, at least. You you come back every week and you're probably wondering, why do I do this? Why do I go ahead and listen to this potential Mexican talk about things he's probably not qualified to discuss? I ask myself the same thing on a rather daily basis, but I'm glad to have you here anyway, folks. Thank you again for joining on another episode of On The Run. It's a pleasure to have you here, but you know it would be a real pleasure if you go ahead and help me out a little bit. Go ahead and... um, you know, join in the fun that we've been having over on Instagram stories and go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Hey Remso. The level of participation we've been getting, I, I, I kid you not, has actually been changing the course of where the show is. Because if we're not having fun together, then obviously I'm, I'm doing something wrong. And whether it's been suggestions for guests, are you telling me what you do and don't like your ability to submit questions, submit your comments, criticisms, criticisms, conspiracies, concerns, otherwise, let me know what you don't and don't like in the polls. I mean, that's really, one, it's fun. Two, it gets you engaged. But three, it really helps me know where things are going. And, uh, you know, you can find me over there at HeyRemso, H-E-Y-R-E-M-S-O. That's where all the fun's happening. Of course, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on all the other platforms, all the other accounts, but Instagram is where I actually kind of like to hide out and have fun. And I think that's what's really different about, you know, other social media. Despite being a, a professional in the social media marketing sphere, I don't find a lot of personal enjoyment from the other platforms. I see a lot of people just sharing what other people do. And usually it turns into six degrees of people calling each other terrible human beings. But on Instagram, I feel like you actually have to create something. You actually have to contribute something. The tone is lighter. The atmosphere is a little bit more laid back. And what what can I say? We've all got our preferences. 
But um, but the question of where we're going, what we're doing, is something I want to talk about today. And I, I couldn't talk about it without Chris Spangle. Chris, you're the only person I'm willing to do a morning recording with. So I hope you feel happy about that. <laughs> well, I'm glad glad to be here. Yeah, I, I typically like to record on Saturday mornings. It's quiet and everybody's asleep and. Uh, most of the people that I talk to are early risers. Are you not an early riser? You, you, you sleep late or what? I, I am a, I am a third shifter to the core. I'm waiting. Oh. I'm a wake up around like 10, 10 30 type of guy. Stay up till about one thirty two AM. And it, it's typically how it's been for me the, the last couple of years. Um, it wasn't something I really chose. I was kind of forced into it because as, as a mall cop, I usually got the third or fourth <laughs> shift. So I'm awake working when everyone is asleep. And Brimzo you know, Blart mall cop. <laughs> yeah, it was the fun stage in my life. What can I say? On my first day of work, um, some kids bought some cigars illegally and used them to set a dumpster on fire. So I can <laughs> say that I had a job that was figuratively and literally a uh, a a dumpster fire after that um you know working campaigns it was always you know you sleep when it's done and with my current job at the times it's you know 1, 1 p.m to 9 p.m and even though i'm teleworking i find myself working more so it's it's been really weird that and my weekends are screwed up i i get fridays and saturdays off which made sense when the world was normal because on fridays that's when i could go run my errands in the morning that's when i can go get things done and then i could still see people and hang out with people on saturdays and then i don't have to work until late in the evening on sunday so things kind of evened out but now now i find myself just working all the time not really sleeping, being awake at all types of hours, sleeping when I shouldn't. So it's the ultimate compromise of comfort. You and I, <clears throat> excuse me, you and I uh, do something similar in that I uh, work for a morning radio show and I usually have most of my work done by this time of day. Uh, I get up at six and uh, get started and and really get a lot done. And I'm enjoying working from home because it's freed up so much more time to read specifically. Like uh, instead of having that hour commute, which turns into two hours because you're going to fast food or running errands or whatever while you're out, or, you know, you're not at the office talking to coworkers. Like I have rediscovered so much more time, you know, so late afternoon yesterday, I went to a park and, you know, got to just go sit in a park. And then, you know, i on the Kindle app, I've read 83 days in a row. I mean, my wow. political analysis I feel has never been stronger because I'm reading so much more and have so much more time to devote towards research and study. So I'm enjoying that a lot and, and that kind of change, but I do know what you mean in that when I worked for the libertarian party, I worked from home and for two years, three years when I worked from home, because I just said, I'm not going to the office anymore. You feel that guilt. Like I'm here, it's 11 AM and I'm cooking a hamburger. I'm not working. I feel like I ought to be doing more. So that, that, that like that sense of shame and guilt that I'm not working hard enough sort of kicks in for us, uh, self-starters. So I know it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a catch 22 because I find myself working more one because I'm more comfortable, but second, because I, I'm, I was always afraid of when other people were working at home that they were slacking. Right. I kind of, I kind of self shame myself with that. 
And it, it was really funny. We, we did an office report to see how people are because we went from 60% work from home because most of our reporters and stuff are not in the district or even on the East Coast to 100%. And what we saw was that our total efficiency rose by like 300%. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a day, you know, it's a die by the minute type of industry. If the paper's not getting out the next day, people are going to notice and things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, we had really very little room for error and now it seems like it's something we're potentially going to be doing permanently. But I, I, I like it in the sense that this has been like a, a weird, a weird moment in my life because I've had a lot of opportunity to make a lot of changes that I wouldn't have otherwise, unless a global event was happening. So in a way it really is the event of the lifetime, but you know, something I, I want to thank you for, and this is where I kind of want to drive things with this. Yes, also, the praise. I, I, you know, that was on my writer. I demand at least five minutes of praise per episode. Dear leader, it's coming, please. But really, um, and this really is a thank you to the audience as well. Getting, uh, so we we had discussed starting the show on the run back really earlier in the year, and I, I had already had things planned out, but the this whole situation really pushed things back because there were many questions going on. Should I do this while everyone is talking about Corona? Is this going to be a short-term thing that I should focus episodes on? Is this going to be a long-term thing that if I don't talk about it, it's going to be strange, especially since we pre-record all the episodes. So this brought in a whole lot of challenges, but the great thing about the network, the other hosts, Brian Nichols, um, Jeremiah, everybody, um, you know, and just really the listeners that really welcomed me in. This has been one of those really fun parts of my week because while, you know, we definitely don't do this because of the millions of dollars we're getting, obviously, this has been really one of those things where it still keeps me connected with people. It still keeps my mind moving and, um, getting to really share this with the listeners has been, something uh that i i didn't realize how much i missed it until it was gone and now mm. getting to have it really return to my life again has really you know ma- made me feel so much more like i i'm in control of something at least so the first question is how many people called you and told you that i was ruining we are libertarians not <laughs> not as many as messaged me about ryan Lindsay. so <laughs> God bless um, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, you know, for those unfamiliar with the We Are Libertarians Network, you know, we started in 2012 and it was, it was, Ron Paul was on his second run. And one thing that I have always hated about the libertarian movement, when I was a libertarian party person, the, the Amash, Ron Paul, Mises crowd was very anti-LP and you need to change it from the inside and very anti-libertarian party, pro-Republican party. And it really rubbed me the wrong way because I felt like we should be partners. And so one of the founding values of We Are Libertarians was everybody's contributions towards the movement are worthy. Because I remember how much it sucked. So there was a great sense of validation when Justin Amash said to me on the Jesse and Chrissy show that I co-hosted that the Republican Party can't be changed from the inside and the LP is the only way. Now, what's funny is that I no longer really identify as a Libertarian Party person. I just don't feel that that's a valuable use of my time. Uh, But I don't begrudge others who do. And so 
One thing that I've tried to build here is a home for different streams, knowing that there are different types of libertarians. You know, you and Brian are probably more to the right, a lot more closer to what most libertarians identify with as, you know, that I see all the time, like, oh, the, the Mises caucus needs to take over the party. I'm like, when did they not have control of the party? Because if you're a Ryan Lindsay and you're a Libsock, there is a lot of discomfort for you. <laughs> because most of the party is in alignment with a Dave Smith or a Tom Woods. Uh, most of the movement is kind of, you know, philosophically Rothbardian. Uh, so it becomes uncomfortable for more left-leaning libertarians like Ryan, who runs the We Are Libertarians magazine, or even a Dennis who is not, who is culturally more left. Dennis is just Dennis. I, I, I stopped trying to pin him somewhere. Yeah, like Reinhold, I guess I should say, instead of, you know, renouncing his real name, Ryan, uh, Reinhold is more of your classical libertarian from the 90s, you know, sort of a Joe Jorgensen libertarian. Like, he's not he's not even culturally left. He's just an old hippie who's kind of become a libertarian. And then I'm sort of like, I have a very journalist, and you may identify with this. I have a journalist mindset. I always wanted to be a journalist. I was 13 when I saw All the President's Men. I, I, and that's what I wanted to do. I remember going to St. Augustine and seeing the St. Augustine record, their magazine or their newspaper building and going, ah, I want to work there, you know? And so part of, I think that mentality is that you want to learn from all these different aspects of something. And what I like is that there's some discomfort between a Ryan and a Rimzo and a Dennis and a me and a, you know, uh, a, a, a hoodie off the top rope, you know, Sarah Wagner, Brady Wagner's kind of evolved over time in her ideology. And so I just, what I wanted to build and, and am building, uh, and I've never really said this anywhere explicitly, but I've always been inspired by the national review model in the fifties where William F. Buckley created national review brought in Frank Meyer, brought in Russell Kirk, brought in all these, you know, James Burnham, all these different strains of conservatism under one roof and had a, a conversation that united the conservative movement that built it into what it is or was. I mean, it's waning now. Uh, and that's what I think libertarianism needs as a movement. I think it needs a home where various streams of thought can have a conversation with each other and can feel safe and at home and be supported. And we're not trying to push one version of something because there's different factors in society right now. There's, there's the political of should the government do this or not? Then there's also the cultural, you know, it's, it's like the difference between me and Ryan Lindsay is that I'm culturally right, Christian conservative with a small C and Ryan is a Jacobin, <laughs> you know, he's, he's very left. And so there's tension between those two cultures. And so where I think we're headed as a society is a multicultural society. It's not a monolithic society where, you know, you have the post-World War order that's predominantly white culture and TV all looks the same. Movies all look the same. We're headed towards culture clashes and cultures bumping up against each other. And I think I want to build something that kind of models that. How do, how do we lead the way towards those conversations that show you can be of different, different cultures or strains of belief and still be friends with each other? 
you know, and it's tough. Yeah. Sometimes that's hard and it's challenging, but th- that's, that's part of what we're trying to do here. Yeah. And I mean, folks, um, Chris doesn't tell me how to run things. He doesn't tell anyone how to run things. I'm a cold stepfather. That's (laughs) essentially, you know, far and distant, not very emotionally and manipulative, but definitely not there. But, um, but I mean, this is one of the things that I, I value about the network and I've seen this enough times with other attempts to do something like this and other, um, you know, things that started with a bang and then slowly crumbled into obscurity. One, the thing that, I think I admire about everybody here is that one, we are content creators first. If you are not a content creator first, you're going to have a hard time. It's a passion for creating things that inform and entertain people. Secondly, it's that despite all of our differences, it's this belief in empowering the individual to make their own decisions. We're all different. We all butt heads, but we all respect each other because ultimately our words aren't going to cause some cataclysmic event. At the end of the day, libertarians and society right now, we will... I think we are a vocal minority. We will, I think, predominantly always be a vocal minority, but at least amongst each other, we can facilitate opportunities to create good content. And ultimately, I mean, that's why we are libertarians. And I mean, with my old show, there's a reason why we were able to get on the iTunes top charts. You don't do that when you're only appealing to 50 people in a Facebook group for the farthest, farthest, farthest and caps out there. It's about having conversations with folks that sometimes aren't even libertarians. And I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I've come at things with more of a journalistic mindset. That's why I don't think that when I was a political consultant, I was that successful because one, yeah. I like being friends with everybody. And two, despite, you know, the, you know, I, I often say positive things about Trump, much to the chagrin of other people. Um, you know, here, here's, here's a fun fact, folks. I've only voted, I've, I vote in almost every election. I've only voted Republican twice in my life. I've really? voted, I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've usually voted Libertarian. I voted uh, Independent before. In Virginia, we have something called the Indie Greens. They're more culturally leftist, but they're more like economically neutral. So like in Virginia, when we're arguing about the gas tax and things like that, um, they, they actually are against it because they're against anything that harms middle to lower class consumers out there. So like I've, I've enjoyed getting to actually see independent green party candidates compete in Virginia. If they had one in my districts, um, I mean, I probably would have voted for one at some point. There are others in the Commonwealth that I've looked at and it's like, wow, I wish they were running here because I fit with them on more things. And I think that this represents a large chunk of America. I think that's what populism is to a certain degree. And I, I say that not with a positive connotation, but it's this, um, economically and big, you know, it's this politically and economically ambiguous America. We usually don't have a lot of fixed ideologies on things. People really react really to one thing at a time and they focus all their energy on that. And then it's almost like, okay, the next problem to be mad as here, let's go ahead and, you know, start from scratch on that. I think that's why we have so many cultural schisms. Um, I mean, that is one of the reasons why when, when I came on with the new show, I, I got that question a lot. It's like, why are you doing this? What is the theme of on the run and everything else? And what's going to make it different than what you did prior? Um, I said it when I released my second book, um, How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship. That was my farewell and final divorce 
from being active in politics. It was around the time I started working at the Times full-time. It was around the time that I really stepped back from doing a lot of the political commentary and political writing I, a lot that had really built me that I had been known for. And it became less about that, and it's more about how do we find the principles of liberty that we often talk about, that we often espouse, and how do we really implement it in our own lives? Because, I mean, I, I know you've spoken about this with your time with the LP in Indiana, Chris, I don't know about you, but even though I don't regret all the campaigns, all the efforts, all the organizations I worked for, at the end of the day, my life, me, Remso Martinez, I was not a better, happier, or even freer person during that time. Whereas now, with a mindset focus on how do I take those principles and those skills and those mindsets I've learned and apply it to myself that was when I started seeing the change because I felt like I was lecturing people more often. Even though I was having conversations, it was really me talking at them. And now with how I've done things so far, it's more about how do we, how do we find those ways for ourselves? How do we find those paths where we can all find, you know, financial health, emotional health and a sense of purpose that I think has driven out a lot of people. Yeah. The, the, the difference between, so for those who don't know anything about me, like from 2008 to 2012, I was the executive director of the Libertarian Party of Indiana. And it was like me and one other person, Bittner down in Georgia, you know, we were the, and then whoever was at the national staff, you know, that was the full-time employees of the entire Libertarian Party. Ugh. And it was a tremendously fun job. And I love I still think about how much I loved that job, how much I loved traveling around the state, getting to talk to people one-on-one, not just libertarians, but, you know, average citizens. It it was an incredibly informative and fun experience, but I had a goal. My goal was to get you to do something, to believe something, to, uh, to be a libertarian party person. And the difference between what I do, what I did then and what I do now is that I'm trying to be heard and understood and trying to hear others and understand them. And that's a much more peaceful path in a conversation than trying to frankly manipulate your behavior or your belief system. You know, and that's what politics ultimately is, is that if I am, and that's why people inherently are suspicious and reject politicians because they know they want something from them. Whereas now you tune into my podcast, I'm just a guy talking with my friends and you listen in and your belief system, I'm creating way more libertarians now because it's much more passive and much less defined and much less aggressive. So, you know, I, I would give that advice to people. If you'd like to have better conversations online, be less interested in trying to convert the person, trying to be right, trying to get them to do something and be more interested in talking because I, I, I'm being swarmed by the alt-right right now on Twitter as we speak. The you last don't say... Hour. Yeah. Joe Jorgensen said something nice about black people and that pissed off half the libertarian movement. And so I agree with her and I defended her. And I think, you know, anti-racism is to me, even though I know that there are, are connotations that have been affixed to that by radical leftists, 
most people are anti-racist in the way that they're anti-abortion or anti-war or you know if you're if you're against racism then you practice that by voting for politicians that are anti-racist or anti-war or anti-abortion that's how most people interpret it and that's what i tried to say but the, the, like this one person, she is a So you're saying that white culture is bad. I'm like, I never said that anywhere. You came to the conversation with a set of assumptions and now you're trying to make me submit to your point of view. And I'm not interested in verbal subjugation. I'm interested in a conversation to understand why you just told me that you think your white family will be under the thumb of black people if you say the words black lives matter like it's not performative in that if you say these magical words all of a sudden a wand will be waved and black people have control over your entire worldview you know and so let's talk about why you're afraid let's talk about why i believe what i believe let's try to have a common understanding of where we're coming from because because i'm anti-racist it does not mean that i am pro-state I'm anti-state and anti-racist and anti-war. Like, you know, and so there's all these different shades of belief in a free society. And conversation is about picking those apart apart and trying to understand what the other person thinks and why and what what experiences they're bringing to the conversation and thinking about that, internalizing that in our own conversation. And so often we approach a conversation with people in that I need you to agree with me to validate my identity. And that is an inherently aggressive and con, uh, confrontational way to do uh, any kind of conversation, any kind of relationship. And uh, Tim Dillon is a comedian who's very smart and, and tweeted out that we should delete TikTok from the app stores as well as Twitter, Facebook. And we should all go back to reading and being friends with people in real life. And even though my entire career is based on social media and online activities, I couldn't agree with them more because I think it incentivizes confrontation and outrage. And that's why we're kind of where we're, it's made the Thucydides trap of that monolithic culture De declining and the rising of multicultural culture uh, and, and the, the conflict between those two much worse because now all of a sudden one white conservative Christian libertarian is arguing with another white Christian conservative libertarian on Twitter because they feel that they have to run to bulwarks to fight each other. And it's, it's, it's like, no, just understand where I'm coming from because I have had these experiences with these cultures and I'm trying to, uh, find a way forward where everybody can be happy. Everybody can be personally fulfilled. Everybody can be personally free, pursue their dreams. Nobody is limited because the state is pursuing a, a drug war or uh, the family's being destroyed because of the drug war, for instance, and, and criminal, you know, things like the crime bill in 1984. Like I want to limit that stuff. I believe that stuff is explicitly racist as if you've heard the John Ehrlichman quote, like that's the origins of the drug war. So it's just, it's a weird time right now. And uh, yeah, I, I think politics is just a more humane version of war. So in, it is good in that it is an evolution from people fighting with guns and killing each other to solve conflict but it still is a form of conflict. And the more we can remove politics from society, the better. Yeah. And I mean, my, I have not 
the, the one thing that I think some people got confused when um, like very, very early on in the, in the episode count, I was kind of talking about the transition, things like that. I didn't want people to think that I was saying don't vote or don't care or don't get involved with things. I think the, the problem for me was that, and, you know, I, I, I tell people up front about this. If you want to learn about what's going on with current events, listen to the Maine We Are Libertarian show. If you want to talk about deep dives of activists and people really trying to make change in certain areas, go listen to Brian Nichols. Why? Because they've got more of an interest and they've got more of a passion than, than I do. I just, like, if I were to have done that, it would have been vague and it would have been a chore and nobody would have enjoyed it. Nobody would have benefited from it, myself included. The, um, the things that I think libertarians have had a, a problem with in themselves, and this is often how other people see them. So it's one of those situations where maybe the cover of the book does tell you what the book is like. Um, it, it's this idea of often libertarians. I, I know Jason Stapleton talks about this quite often. Um, I'm going to link to an episode of the Brian Nichols show, folks, in the show notes where Brian actually spoke to Jason Stapleton recently. I think it's probably one of the most important episodes of a single podcast that you could listen to for the, for the immediate future. I, I, so I'm going to link to that there, but essentially uh, with me, it was like, I see a lot of people telling people how to live their lives and how to be free and how to want to be free, but they themselves are not in a position of influence or authority or even in an ability to drive envy from others. And that is a driving factor in human interactions to be convincing of that. Because if you're, if you're broke, if you're living, you know, day to day, cause your health is all over the place. If you're not making decisions based off what you believe and you're at, and you're reacting to things, despite how you might stand, on certain issues, people are going to see how you live. And that is ultimately what is going to convince people. I tell people with my show, The, the Witching Hour, which is so very different from everything else I do. Uh, it's, a, it's a paranormal TV show. I tell people that I graduated from Liberty University with, I know for a fact, compared to some people that majored in pastoral studies and have mm-hmm. tried to be church planters, that I have made more people Christian not by beating them over the head of something or trying to sell them something, but by getting them interested in something else and starting a conversation, not in public. Yeah. And it's one of those very strange things that I began to see, you know, within the first season around the time that we won the 2019 Indie Series Awards for Best Nonfiction Series. It was a very weird thing when I brought that up on an interview on another show. But um, one of the things that changed me, and this is really kind of like the road to on the run in a way, it's about, it's, I think, I don't know if it's a year ago, this month, this month or this week, but it's almost coming up. It may have passed already. It's the one year anniversary of this moment that really changed things for me. I was a freelance reporter for quite a bit. Um, you know, between dealing of dumpster fires and helping people with returns at GameStop. But um, I, I wanted to go write a story about this, uh, the Sudanese pastor who a former congressman I worked for helped grant refugee status and bring to Virginia. And it was about three, four hour drive from where I live outside of D.C. And I wanted to go meet this guy, sit with him, meet his family and just basically learn about his story. I wanted to do something with it. And, you know, in Virginia, it really is kind of like a tale of two cities because you've got 
Northern Virginia, right outside of DC, then you've got the rest of the Commonwealth. And it is really like, as you're driving South, you're seeing an increase of poverty, an increase of overdoses. You're seeing an increase of people that are just really wondering if anything really positive in the world is going to come out of the future. So you kind of see this and you begin to feel it around you. But as I go to this pastor's house, I realize it's not really a house. It's a small guest house that is owned by this one family that owns a rather large farm that they have allowed this family of six, including two infants, to live in. So that shocked me up front. I probably should have expected that, but I didn't. I walk into their home and I realize, one, this place is hot and humid as hell. Virginia in the South, it's like the devil set his ass on it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's hot. It's hot. And I've, I've been all over the place. It is bad. So they have one standing fan that's essentially pushing hot air, but it's uh-huh. better than nothing. So here, I mean, they're this, they're this very Coptic Christian, very, you know, missionary Baptist Christian family. Uh, his mother and his wife and all their kids, they're on one side of the house because when guests are here, they're going to speak to the man of the house. So they're off to the side where it's probably even hotter than me. What do they do? I brought my girlfriend with me. She wanted to, to come with me and meet them. They, they go to a cooler on the floor that's filled with ice, and they pull out two large bottles of water, and they give it to each of us. Then what he does is he pulls the standing fan away from where his family was, and he puts it in front of me to make his guest feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And just right there, we haven't really spoken about anything, but just right there, I'm like, okay, this is drastically different than what I thought this was going to be like. Now this adds more depth to the story. Um, then I talked to him and essentially he was the, he was the head of, of the, I think it's assembly of Christ in Sudan. He was essentially like the, the Billy Graham of Sudan. Wow. I mean, this guy had a PhD, a master's in theology and everything else. Like he was big. And then when the Sudanese civil war started, um, you know, he was doing missions work to people, trying to help people, even, even Sudanese Muslims and him and a bunch of other pastors were imprisoned for several years during the civil war uh, for essentially being accused of plotting against the government. So here's a man who's basically living all I can compare it to is the life of the Apostle Paul. It's insane. He was pushed from prison to prison. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was threatened. He thought he was going to die on numerous occasions. Didn't see his family for, for years. Eventually, you know, long story short, he, he's let out when uh, an NGO steps in. And then somebody who knew my congressman contacted and was like, you got to get this guy and his family out of Sudan or they're going to kill him. Goes to Sudan without even letting the state department knows pulls a whole bunch of like legal jujitsu out. Cause he's one of the best lawyers I've ever met in my life, which is why he made a good politician. And um, he pulls this guy back and now they're, they're refugees in the United States. And he is the ha- They are, they are a happy family they're a grateful family and they they're, they're living the best life they can under the circumstances. And as I, we were there for like three, four hours, as I left something about me changed about that because what I realized was me a rather blessed, a rather very lucky person 
I consider my life a bunch of stories failing upwards in many ways. I, I need to be more grateful and I need to reassess things. And I think that the problem with some libertarians and, you know, if just we're talking about just this niche group as an example for many other things, folks who are listening, it's that, yeah, there are problems, there are issues, but one, I don't think we're grateful enough. Secondly, I don't think we listen enough. Third, there's not a lot of practicing what we preach. And for me, I realized, yeah, I, I, I check off all those three things. I agree with you. Like, okay. So the, the crux of not to date this, but the crux of the argument that the, that is happening in the libertarian party right now is that Joe Jorgensen, the presidential candidate said, use the hashtag black lives matter and said, we must be anti-racist. So everyone's arguing the word must. So we've devolved into semantics, right? It's, uh, well, she's, she shouldn't be telling people what to do. That's not libertarian. Well, the LP platform uses the word must 14 times. It's the black lives matter part that you have problems with. But the, the reality is that somebody sat down and wrote that tweet in about three minutes. If they put that much effort into it, use the word must carelessly and we aren't showing their campaign grace for sloppy language. One of our own, you know, it's like, I, I have to, I have to have this conversation with myself all the time in that I need to be patient. I need to be loving. I need to be graceful. Like this person that is going after me on Twitter right now, calling me out, you know, quote tweeting me and saying, look at this fat loser. Well, I go and look at through this person's timeline and her grandma's dying. 13 hours ago, she says, my grandma's in the hospital. Will you pray for her? Well, I'm now her punching bag for her emotions. And no, that's not right of her to do that to me. But it gives you context into why this person is probably being more aggressive than she would be on a normal day. You know, and so I just replied, hey, I'm really sorry about your grandma. All of a sudden, the fact that I treated her like a human being, she's now changed her tune in that Twitter conversation we're having to treat me like a person as opposed to a punching bag for her anger and fear, you know? And that has, that has to, to be, that's, that was hard for me to lay down my pride and because I'm a very petty person and I want to make an example of people and I Don't want we all yeah, right. That's part of what the dear leader character, the dear leader joke is a way for me to exercise the worst parts of myself and make fun of it and point it out in an, in an effort to like, because I just think that's how most people are. They have this petty side of them where they, you have to pass and that's the, the Christian decision, right? It's, do I, do I pursue this with my base instincts of aggression and anger and pride and fear? Or do I take the other path and try to be humble and understanding of where this person is coming from and what are their needs? And, you know, it's, it's not easy. And I don't think there's anybody in the world that, that succeeds at that all the time. But it is something that I think we have... If we are to build a free society, we have to be the people that others want to live with. You know, I think if you look at the controversy over, if you look at the last couple months there, when, when I talk to people, I'm on another podcast called the Pat Down with Ms. Pat and Pat and Dion Curry. And it's 
it's a comedy podcast. It's 90% funny and 10% racial reconciliation and conversations about race. And when I talk to that audience, which is predominantly black, predominantly liberal, they view libertarianism as a white supremacist ideology. And I never understood that. But now that I am in their culture and I see their points of view and I listen to them and I understand where they're coming from, and I now have a foot in both camps and then something like this happens, I, I now understand what they're talking about. So now I can take that, that experience of being a bridge between these two cultures and explain to my people, here's why there are no black libertarians. Because not because there aren't enough black faces. Our, our thought is let's, let's find a black guy and put him up front. You know, and, that, and I'm guilty. Like that's part of what I thought you should do is like, if they quote unquote, see one of them quote unquote, then they'll be more likely to be libertarian. And that's not how it, how it is. It's, it's like the reverse Candace Owens example. Yeah. And I bring her up not to attack her. I personally don't like her. I I personally don't. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it bugs a lot of people that I know that I don't like her, but I don't, I don't like her and I'm not going to drive into accusations of her, but I think she's an example of somebody who knew how to get famous and says certain things for the sake of that. I could be totally wrong, but that's my, from, from the people I've spoken to, from the things I've witnessed, from what I've gathered, that's my, that's my view of that. And I think that's why when a lot of black people are like, don't think because you have one black person saying what you want, that that's how the rest of us think. I get it. For sure. And, and so now that I'm, I'm kind of in that camp, I see like, like Miss Pat's family is very familial. Uh, she grew up in a very like financially disadvantaged situation. Her book rabbit is one of the greatest books I've ever read. It's hilarious. I read it in two hours, but you read about how she grew up in poverty in inner city Atlanta. And you can't, I never could imagine that that I'd never thought that existed in real life. I thought it was movies. I grew up in a very, in a 98% white privileged community where Miss Pat now lives. And it's been a hard adjustment for her to be like, she didn't know white people until she was 30. She was taught to be afraid of them, you know? And so it's, it's been an experience for her to have these conversations with me explaining my side of the culture to her and going, Oh, okay. That's why you think that, you know, every, all of a sudden you're, we're not enemies to each other. We're friends with disagreements. You know, Dion is a Bernie bro who wants socialized medicine. But when we had an hour and a half conversation about it, Dion and I want the exact same thing. We want individuals to be well cared for. We just have different paths to get there. So now we're not enemies. We just have a disagreement on policy, you know, and the, the, so I had a conversation with a libertarian and he goes, why, well then why aren't there more black libertarians? And it's because they see so many libertarians go, but Chicago as if the black community isn't concerned with crime, right? Like, do you think that black pastors and black cops and black mayors and black, like they're concerned with it. It's just that the majority of this country, which does happen to be white, keeps voting for things like the drug war. You know, it, it's going to take the majority of this country to participate in the conversation about how we've been voting and what policies we've been implementing to make real changes. But for us to understand that things like the drug war are problematic, we're going to have to engage in the conversations. And so, you know, it's 
the problem with people like Candace Owen or, or, you know, on the other side of Sean King is that it's not about conversation. They're taking that, that, let's say the fork in the road, they're taking that left path towards disagreement. Uh, they're t- towards disintegration, disunion. Uh, th- they're not taking the right path, which is much less po- popular and much harder, which is conversation and trying to build a culture that is, has less friction. It has less friction on the macro level, but more personal friction, Right. Yeah. So, and and it's because at the macro level, more people who understand other cultures and other ways of life are more accepting of those cultures because like you found out when you went and visited this pastor, you may have thought like you, you said it, I had all these assumptions about going over to their house and what it would be like. And when I got there, my assumptions were completely changed because you walked in with an open mind and an open heart. And you, you walked away going, you know, coming from the right, you probably had all these thoughts about immigration, you know, and then you may walk away from that experience going, Hmm, maybe part of our strength is diversity and unity and immigration plays a role in that because this person that you're talking about is a net benefit to the American society because we've taken somebody from another country that was not wanted and brought them to a place where they are wanted. And now they are performing excellent acts in this country. I guarantee it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been, it's been one of those things that is something that I, I routinely fall back to when I think I'm becoming more someone that's focused on my, my own pride and things like that. And, you know, sometimes it's, you know, we, we live in a complex world, people. That's why we have to go ahead and expand our thoughts on a lot of things. If I'm doing an episode on guided meditation, it's because it might not be something I'm into, but might be something that someone else wants into. And it's why, you know, conversations like this are happening. I didn't want to have conversations like this, but they're the conversations I'm having. And I know that, you know, I, I might as well address it here. Like I, I shared a, an article from the American conservative about, um, you know, Robert E. Lee's role in Virginia and the post-reconstructive South. Many people don't really know this about me. I know that I've spoken it on your show, Chris, but I have a very, uh, you know, fragmented family tree. I'm the first person in my immediate nuclear family born in the United States. My mother was born, (gasps) uh, you know, in, in Korea to a, to an American father and a Korean mother. And my dad was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So I'm the first person in my family to be born in the United States. I'm the only Martinez that could legally run for president. Um, (laughs) but you know, I've also always lived predominantly in the South. I, I identify really not through necessarily heritage, but through culture as a Southerner. And it's just, it's just part of it. I love sweet tea and cheese grits and shrimp are my, my go-to. I love it. So when I shared that piece about Robert E. Lee and I said some positive things about Robert E. Lee, if people read the article and my post, I wasn't saying anything about statues. I'm just talking about Robert E. Lee. This might be controversial, but I'll talk to anybody about it. I think that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man who made tough choices and was on the wrong side of an issue. 
I, I'm a big Civil War buff. I, I did a giant road trip around Virginia because it is my favorite state. I love it. I visit every town that I've ever wanted to go to in Virginia, minus South Boston, because South Boston does suck. Um, that's undisputed. I will fight people with that. But, you know, when it comes to issues like, you know, the, the what about Chicago thing, I think I've seen the inverse of that. Well, what about Charlottesville? What about Selma? Well, I've, I've lived outside of Charlottesville. I've lived outside of Selma. My, my, both of my books are considered technically su- Southern Gothic novels. I, t- I, I mean, Southern Gothic books because my first book talks a lot about the civil rights movement. My second book takes place in Virginia and deals with George Wallace. What happens when a politician who starts on one side of things ends up becoming a monster in order to acquire more power. And with, you know, with, with Southerners, I understand that they get angry in the way that many other people get angry because people inherently are insecure about many things. Um, you know, oh, yeah. Like the, the, you hear, it's the old Jeff Foxworthy bit, right? You hear you, the doctor with the Southern accent or the financial about, well, what are we going to do? We is uh, planting your money in the backyard and jar. And it's, and that there is a chip on the shoulder of Southerners because they are perceived to be one way when you see or hear their accent. Right. Yeah. And I mean, my, my father, I think he's one of actually the first Puerto Ricans to have ever graduated from the Citadel, the Citadel, shot the first cannon fire at Fort Sumner in the civil war. Right. My dad who went there in the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. He thought it was kind of weird how uh, now integrated Corps of cadets of black cadets is singing Dixie. I went to a military junior college that actually was the, the location where the first uh, Confederate battle flag was. We have not, you know, we didn't wear the gray cotton uniforms. We never flew the, the Confederate battle flag uh, after, I think, the, the 70s. And we had a majority Black Corps of Cadets the year I was there. But, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that you understand there. And the one thing I understood when I lived in Alabama for those two years and I spoke with people who had been, you know, they were proud of their great-great-grandpappy who fought with, uh, you know, um, fought with Lee and Gettysburg and stuff. I asked them, it's like, how do you feel about a lot of people's view of the deep South? And they're like, we're, we're very multicultural. You look at uh, any major city in the South, you have lots of mixed couples. That's something that a lot of people don't really understand. I see more mixed couples in the South, especially the deep South than I do up North along the East coast. It's just something I've, I've seen. It's just a, it's just an observation. And the one thing that a good chunk of them told me was it's as if we're never allowed to forget the bad things that happened. And because we're never allowed to do that, we're not allowed to take pride in the good things about us. And there are many things about Southern culture that I do really like. It's very, regardless of whether you're a Democrat or Republican in the South, you're very, very keen on the family unit. You're very keen on localism. You're very keen on that. It's, it's just one of those things that I see more of in the South. I see that as really part of Southern culture. Whether people like it or not, it's where they come from. It's what they'll always be either pushing away from or coming to. It's just one of those things. And it often confuses people because when you have a guy named Remso Martinez with a very multiracial, multicultural family, you know, defending Southern culture in that, they have a very different opinion of Southern culture, probably because they didn't take time to understand it. Otherwise, 
they probably just have never experienced it. Because what is Southern culture even taught in some public schools in the South? It's always the Civil War, and it's always Jim Crow. We need to understand those things. Those things happen for a reason. They were negative things. No one can ever escape it. But when do you allow people to move on from that, but keep the good things? Well, even so, I heard, I watched a video recently of my family from when I was a kid. My great-grandmother, who grew up in Vince, near Vincennes, Indiana, in southern Indiana, I heard her talking. And I heard an accent that I've never heard. In, and I love accents and I love language and I love how people talk. And I heard an accent that she had that no longer exists. So even those regional, and there's this great Tim Wilson bit from the show I work on called the Bob and Tom show, where he talks about Southern accents. He's like in Alabama, they talk up here. And then in Southern Georgia, (laughs) and he basically goes through every Southern state and gives you the regional accents and he nails it. And it's so interesting because you know, he talks about in Savannah, Georgia, you know, in Mississippi, it's down here. And, and so the God, as she was called, called, uh, had this regional accent that no longer exists because everything's more homogenized. Television ha- has kind of been a culture destroyer and flattens everything, which is why the Lear Foundation and Norman Lear spent so much time trying to you know, put together TV shows about their, their predominant culture. And so I, I understand the backlash that you're talking about. And I do appreciate the fact that like, when do you let people forget? But I think people have a, a reaction. For instance, when we talk about race, there is a reaction that it, there isn't anything that I post about or talk about that gets a reaction like race. I, I, I used to say I, I think that, that's probably you know and I've seen this when I lived overseas in America we are more fixated on this because I think we are probably the most insecure country about yes this. and it's and why are people insecure about anything it's because they don't talk about it mm-hmm. and so there is when a black person tries to share their experience or when you came on we're libertarians and you shared your experience I got messages from people saying why are you talking about this? Just stick to policy. Well, I would think that it's important for people to hear Harry's experience as a black man in America and your experiences as a multi-ethnic man in America. Like when you go to Republican events and they try to stuff you into the Latino caucus, it's like, it's, it's very dismissive and it's hurtful and it's not appropriate and it's not individualism in, in the slightest. And so we don't want to talk about it. And so there, there, there is a resentment on the other side at the ostrich-like behavior about it. The all white, all lives matter, white lives matter, but Chicago stuff is infuriating to people who want to have a conversation. And and having gone through this process over the last year or two with Miss Pat, like I didn't want to talk about it. And she said to me recently, she goes, "I can see the fear in your eyes. I expected you to quit." I expected you to <laughs> continue doing the podcast because I could see how uncomfortable you were. You, th- you were defensive. You thought we were going to call you a racist at any moment. She's like, I knew you weren't a racist. I knew you just didn't have the language to talk about it. And it's very true. Like I am dating someone that has a small kid and 
Like this kid doesn't have language yet. And so the reason toddlers throw tantrums is because, because they, they can't don't communicate. have the words. Yeah. And so the whole, we don't talk about politics and we don't talk about religion thing has uh, taken away the language to talk to each other. And so while I appreciate what you're saying about the South, you also have instances where like when Selma, Alabama elects their first black mayor in 2000, within months, a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest pops up, you know, or in 2000, in, there was an election to remove interracial marriage, uh, a ban on interracial marriage from the Constitution. Forty percent of Alabamians voted to keep inter, interracial marriage illegal. When, I, when like, I learned about that, like it, it, it just it, it still shocks me. And that's when people look at the timelines. Like a lot of the stuff is still recent. And Virginia's motto, or, or well, no, not Virginia's motto. Or our motto is six Semper Tyrannis, death of tyrants." But our slogan for like tourism is "Virginia is for lovers." That right. comes out of "Loving v. Virginia," where a white man, a black woman, could not legally get married in the seventies. Yeah, and that so that's I think the the frustration from from people is that. There's this sense that, and there are people who want to overrun American culture. There are people who want to tear down the founding. There are people who are Marxists who want to undo all that stuff. But the majority of people that I talk to in the pat down audience are not interested in that. They're interested in being understood. They're interested in being heard and they're interested in not being dismissed. And so the white southerner wants the same thing right like the 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 protester in michigan wants to be heard and not dismissed the same as the black lives matter protester wants and so there's all this common ground that people like you and i can see because we have our feet in different cultures and it's frustrating to see people who want to just hunker down hide behind a bulwark shoot at anybody that's willing to threaten their safety and their and threaten discomfort and so it's kind of like, I, I just need the white Southerner to get over it and have that conversation. Like there is have enough security in your own identity and belief system to enter into discussions with people you don't agree with. And yeah, so yeah. I take shit for having Ryan Lindsay, who is a Marxist libertarian. I, I want people to find one instance of me ever arguing publicly with Ryan. Even though I, you I want bet to, you a million, you even though sometimes I'm like, I want to poke the bear folks. You <laughs> won't find it. Yeah. It's like, just, like you, you won't find it. It's not there. I don't know that. Right. But here's the thing. I don't know that his worldview is reconcilable with mine, but let's figure it out. Let's, let's talk it through. Let's see where, where are the points of agreement and disagreement? And there may come a time where that, where, where he may go, I, I could just can't, I can't be associated with libertarians. All right, man. Well, you, we part friends and the same with you. You may go at some point and go, I got to go back to the Republican party. And it's not, you know, I, I, I love politics again. And I don't I think they want me back. <laughs> you know, it's, it doesn't threaten my identity and my belief system to have people associated with me that, I can be friends with like Ryan is a Christian and Ryan believes what he believes because of his Christianity. It, it, it is born out of Yoder and how, how are my, I'm not even going to try. Yeah. Howerweiss, uh, Stanley Howerweiss, like he's, it, it's got a Christian foundation. So there's a point of agreement, you know, and 
you know, Dion and I have points of agreement and we can be friends with each other, you know, and, and, and that's got, that's, we've got to be the model. That's the culture that we have to build. That's the culture that we have to work on. If COVID has exposed anything, it is the deep loneliness that is in this country where people are, as we have eroded institutions and, and I'm somewhat of a small C conservative in that I do believe you have to have strong uh, non-government institutions in order for a free society to flourish. You have to have a strong family. You have to have strong community organizations. You have to have strong community connections for liberty to flourish. I mean, that's the reason that liberty is not flourishing and everything's falling apart is that we have eroded those institutions. We've allowed those who don't believe in institutions to use the government to erode those institutions from the left and the right. And so we're now all in hell. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. And so libertarians have to be part of the conversation about rebuilding those free institutions, because there is a day sooner rather than later where the government will not function and there is no legitimacy in the government and people will be looking for an alternative and we don't want AOC and the Marxists to be the only alternative. But we're never going to get to that point if we're not engaged in the discussion. If we're too afraid, if we're too fragile, if we're too upset that somebody's pointing out something, yes, every... Miss Pat constantly says to me, I know your family didn't participate in slavery, but you understand that there, there are, it was harder for me to get to where I am than it was for you to get to where you were at. And I freely admit that. So what is my responsibility in that? Vote differently. Understand that some of the shit that I used to say is unempathetic and hurtful to people of color. So change my language a little bit. You know, but that doesn't mean that all of a sudden I am I am flagellating myself at her front door and apologizing for my whiteness. Did, did I, you ever listen to I'm sorry to interrupt. Did you ever listen okay. to Jay Severin? I I know the name. He he was he was a he was like the token Chicago conservative talk show host. He was on the Blaze for a while. Listen to him mm. apology. He died recently. Really? And I I didn't agree with Jay Severin, but I liked listening to Jay Severin. It kept me intellectually stimulated. And I, I posted a thing when Glenn Beck wrote a letter talking about Jay Severin and somebody went into the comments and they just started saying, Oh, Jay Severin's the most racist man alive. Hear clips of him saying these things. J- Jay Severin said some pretty stupid shit. Um, I think, especially when I listened to that and I listened to Jay Severin before he passed, like, Two different people, different people. Yeah. I've got, I've got a friend, uh, one of my oldest friends, Zed Shake. He's on the podcast whenever I, I do a, a, a panel with my friends from high school. We've been friends for more than a decade. Zed is a, you know, a second generation American Muslim, one of the most hard right conservative people I ever met. He's a big Steven Crowder fan. And I can never understand why. Because when I remember Steven Crowder, I remember the not Muhammad skits. <laughs> I remember laughing at those. And recently he told me that on Steven Crowder's Good Morning Mud Club, he gave a shout out to all of his Muslim listeners who write him fan letters and share his stuff. Uh, like there's more than I ever thought. And I asked him that. He's like, how did that bother you? Like if someone was making fun of Jesus constantly, I probably wouldn't really like them. And he's like, you know, he did that. 
But the fact that he's identifying them as a segment of his audience and he's spoken to them in the past and stuff, the guy's different. I, I can accept that he did bad, but I'm looking at who he is now. Yeah, like there's two different – and Beck has I've, – I've been a huge Glenn Beck. I started in talk radio in 2004. My career path is talk radio. It has been since I've been eight years old. Like I listen to Rush, even though it makes me cringe all the time. I think Ben Shapiro is a master and becoming a master. I mean, I can get through two topics in an hour and he can get through 15 or 30, you know, like, and that's, I appreciate their skill. And Beck though, I think is the most skilled and I have appreciated his path and change over time. Uh, and I think that you can morph and change. Like there's a lot of shit that I said on the podcast over the last nine, eight, nine years that I no longer agree with, or that I would take back or that I, you know, that I'm embarrassed by. You know, there's ways that I treated people on the podcast that I just, I am so embarrassed by it, you know, and it's because I'm, I'm trying to, to change. And I, and I just think I've been on air since I was 22 years old. I'm now 36. And when I die at f- hopefully 90, I will still be doing this and I will have changed a lot. And so that's why I don't, I see all these people like tweet, you know, here's to Ron Paul for being the most consistent motherfucker of all time. I'm not sure if I can cuss, but that's a direct quote. And I'm just like, consistency over 40 years and some things is good, but like there has to be some, I'm constantly like we're libertarians. It's just the output of my reading and research and learning and talking. And like, it, it is a, it is a conduit of just, it's a, it's a filtration of everything I'm putting in my head and if you're just reading the same thing over and over, you never grow as a person. And like, that's not interesting. That's not, you know, and so to, to your point, it's like Stephen Crowder is somebody that typifies, I think, the talk radio conundrum that I've struggled with as I've grown my show. What builds an audience is the left path, right? In the sense of going back to our Faustian bargain, the left path of I'm going to inflame and push this button and be outrageous and be immature. And the Howard Stern of 1994, where I'm going to put, you know, Debella in a casket and say outrageous <laughs> things and dress that stuff works. It's it, Dave Portnoy at Barstool grew Barstool based on the Howard Stern model of I'm going to be super provocative and I'm going to be inflammatory. I'm going to be outrageous, but I'm going to be real and vulnerable and funny and ironic. And that's a lot of what the alt-right has adopted. That's why a lot of people are attracted to them is the irony is the fun the it's mercurial uh you know that's how barstool has grown but there comes a point where you have to go what is beneficial for society and what am i contributing to and after i had a a fairly quasi public split with a co-host that was very important to the show uh over personal issues you know it was just it came to a point where the two of us didn't have the trust to do the show anymore. Right. And that's regretful and it sucks, but it also made me go, what was my role in that? What was the role of the way that we did the show? 
that caused this personal breakdown? What was the way that I, how was I living my life? What was, what was my over the top attention seeking doing to my personal relationships that led to that happening? And, and do I want to live that way? You know? And so now what I, the way that I approach my personal broadcasting style is I want to give my listeners as much value in helping them understand their lives and less of my bullshit, (laughs) you know, like, and I think there comes a point for every broadcaster, like a Crowder or a Beck where they go, I grew in popularity because I was doing this thing. I was feeding people candy, but then I looked at my audience and they were 900 pounds and I was a thousand pounds and went, is this a way that I can survive? Like, this is not good. This is not healthy. So I started eating more vegetables and losing weight. And now my audience has shrunk, but it's more valuable to people. And in, in a lot of ways, my audience is, is bigger than it was, but the impact is much more meaningful to people than it used to be when we were a comedy podcast versus a, a, a podcast that tries to give an understanding of the cultural events around us, current events, explain the news, that kind of stuff. Right. It's harder. It's harder work for me. It's, it's not going to grow as fast as somebody like, I, I think Dave Smith is perfectly comfortable smashing that right cultural populism button, that little dopamine drip to build his audience malice does it that's their personal choice it helps them grow an audience faster you know that's not something that that is something i could do if i wanted to right like i could sit here and you know how dare joe jorgensen do this this is how she's falling into the leftist you know flirting with that line you know and 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 i'm not trying i think malice is one of the most brilliant people in the game right now and i think smith is too I think they've just chosen a different style than I have. And so that's the extent of my criticism. I'm not saying they're bad. So please don't write me hate mail. Um, But what, what's the value of that? You know, is, is it really is dunking on Joe Jorgensen to grow your audience really helpful for the movement or is that more toxic for the movement in the long run? Because it creates a segment that participates in its own version of cancel culture, you know, in the way that we are afraid marks that oh, if we are afraid racism, here's the fear racism will be used as a term to end everything we believe in. But the same people who say that, that thing, right. Use the term leftist and Marxist to try and drown out somebody like Ryan Lindsay or me, you know, even though I'm not a Marxist and I'm not a leftist, I get called that all the time by right-leaning libertarians, <laughs> right? Because they're trying to cancel me there. It's easier. It's an easier path to get me to shut up. And so they can dominate than to have to deal with me in a one-on-one conversation where I may have a different ag- point of agreement, right? Like, so at the end of the day, it's a spirit of domination instead of a spirit of cooperation, which I think is just antithetical to libertarianism. And so a Crowder, you know, on the 4th of July, I saw him post an Instagram post where he's lighting off fireworks, flipping up the double birds and humping the air with a cigar in his mouth, you know, and he's constantly like doing inappropriate, immature things to make his audience laugh. To believe he started on Arthur. 
Right. You know, that's, and that's his thing. And that's, he's attracting a certain style of audience and that's, and, and I laughed because I knew what he was doing, you know, and, and it's just how it is. But I also think his change my mind segments are deeply beneficial to his audience. Whereas I, so I'm willing to trade like the immature air humping <laughs> for the change my mind segments, which I think are maybe they're edited to make people look like a fool, but I just don't think they are. Like I watch those and I'm like, okay, this guy is trying to have a conversation and in the process highlighting the absurdity of the opposite side, but giving them enough rope to hang themselves, you know, giving them the opportunity to say foolish things, challenging them. And then they do what a lot of his audience will do in their challenge, which is scream and tantrum because they don't have, I used to get so upset when I would go up against the host that I produced for Abdul. And I listened back to those Oh seven Oh eight shows where I was his producer and on air. And I am so ignorant and so uninformed and so dumb. And I remember being so mad and I still get this way when I get pissed off because I don't have a retort. I go and research the hell out of something and try to learn it and figure out the language to give voice to what I'm feeling inside. And that's, I think what a good broadcaster or journalist should do is try to do their homework as best as they can to give value to their audience because, you know, you have to do it in a fun and entertaining style, but that can't be the substance. And that's the problem with a Tommy Lauren or some of these MAGA type people is they're all substance or, or they're all show and no substance. There's no ideological foundation there other than owning the libs and the owning the lib stuff only takes you so far. And only it's it's power politics just for for fun's sake or whatever it's it's a dangerous road to go down yeah and i think you know one of the reasons why i probably was not the best objective reporter when i was freelance reporting like my my journalism role model is is hunter thompson (laughs) and i i've read all of his books even his collections like uh fear and loathing at rolling stone he, he was an incredibly depressed man, which is why he ultimately killed himself in 2005. And one of the things that made him so depressed was that Hunter Thompson, the journalist, was often put under or put in the corner because people wanted Raul Duke from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Right. And that bugged the hell out of him. And in many ways, and he he says this as a positive thing, he's like, if I wasn't crazy in some cases, you wouldn't be reading me in the serious ones. Um, His coverage of the 1972 Democratic primary is the best political journalism out there. And, you know, Thompson said nice things about people who I... It, it surprises me. He he praised Marx on some things. He was explicitly pro-choice. Um, you know, we're very two different people, but I admired the the character of the journalist in him. And this is a guy who can still go and you know spread spread rumors about. Um, uh, I forget the front runner, the guy who was doing like Ibogaine, uh, Wilkie. I forget his name in 1972. God forgive me, but he's the same guy who could do that, but still go have a drink with like Pat Buchanan. And those two would be pen pals 
for the remainder of his life. I mean, it's, it's stuff like that where it's like that balancing act is always going to be dangerous, but that's how that is in a strange way. Mine is Mencken. I love HL Mencken. Uh, I read the uh, William Manchester biography of him and I didn't know I had heard the name and I'd seen the quotes, but I didn't know anything about the guy. He's one of the first people to identify as a libertarian under that label. But he also believed he almost believed in nothing and cared about everything and was a shit poster. But in an intellectual way, he, he, he's, he's just a fascinating person that, that I uh, aspire to be one day because he challenged his readers to be fiercely independent in their thinking and, and ridiculed anybody that tried to control someone else. And that was his guiding principle. It was free speech. It was open thought. It was open dialogue. He'd give a platform to anybody. And, uh, you know, that's, somebody that I want to be. I, I don't, I think that the Jonah Goldberg always says this people see the role of a political pundit as an adjunct campaign professional. They're there to give advice to their party and to always support the party, no matter what. And he views the role of an analyst or a columnist or a podcaster as a person that is supposed to be critical and po- an optimistic about any and all things they're, they're, they're to be, to criticize, you know, they're not to be cheerleaders of their party. And I see that in the LP people are like, why are you critical? Please stop saying negative things about the LP. You're making us look bad. My job is not to constantly give the LP cover and give them advice as to how to be better. My advice, my job is to find the weak points, point that out and let them fix it. Because without that process, then they don't get better. And maybe there are parts of it that are just irredeemable. It's the same with Republicans and, and, and Trump. And it's, you know, being critical of these things, pointing out the good and the bad in your own circles is important. Because I have no credibility with Democrats. I have no credibility with Republicans, really. They don't listen to me. The right and libertarians specifically do listen to me. And so I'd rather talk to my in-group about the problems that I see in our own movement than spend all my time criticizing the out-group of which I have no effect on in an effort to seem like a cheerleader to gain email signups, to sell books, to sell podcast subscriptions, all that. Like, yes, it would be a lot more lucrative for me to be a cheerleader for my own side and constantly just own the libs and own the cons. But I I don't feel that that's helpful. And I, I feel that there are enough people doing that. Like that's boring. There's nobody in that other lane saying, here's the bad things about us. And here's the good things about us. And here's the way forward for us to get to a a libertarian society. And here's that path forward. And I think that's, I wish people would be more critical or allow more criticism of their own in-group because I think that's beneficial to the in-group. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell people one of the early things on I learned in podcasting was the best worst or worst best decision I made was interviewing uh, Karen Nicole Trujillo, who was a green party candidate in Arizona. And she, we had a great episode. She's also a super, a super hot, like just 
objectively beautiful cosplayer. She's one of the top cosplayers in the cosplay community. So people were attacking her because of that, because suddenly we're all Puritans. And then they were doing that because I was supposed to be like the libertarian party of Virginia podcast. And I mean, like it's, it's, it's the road that we take. That is what's important because we're all gonna, we're all gonna die one day. We don't get to write our own legacies I believe that there's life after death and we're going to have to take into account for these things, but I will have rather have changed than than not. And hopefully for the better, Chris, we've had a great long talk. Great to have you on. Thank you for the opportunities. Look forward to having you on the future. People want to go ahead and fight with you online though. How can they do so? Follow me everywhere, anywhere. Just look up Chris Bangle and we're libertarians and follow all that stuff. And please check out our podcast. If you haven't. Absolutely. Folks. Not much else there to say other than have a great day. Hope you learned something. I'm Remso W. Martinez. Follow me everywhere at Hey Remso. Find me on Parlor at R-E-M-S-O, at Remso. If you ever see at Remso 2 pop up on there, call them a loser. As always, take care. Have fun on the road. Good night. shows and more from the We Are Libertarians network at wearelibertarians.com.